Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're very happy to welcome a familiar voice back to the program. That would be Sarah Montalbano. Uh, Sarah, you've been on here before. You are a policy manager at Alaska Policy Forum and also a Northwest Regional Leader with Young Voices. Uh, For those meeting you for the first time, though, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thank you. I am a born and raised Alaskan. I, um, of course, work at Alaska Policy Forum and Young Voices, and I am also a visiting fellow at the Independent Women's Forum, where I get to really dive into these energy and environment issues. So I'm really excited to be here. And you wear more hats. Every time I talk to you, <laughs> people are yeah, asking you I'll to I'll have a new up. one next time. Wow. Now, this is a great topic that we have today. And you said uh, kudos to the folks at C3 for tipping you off to this. New micro-reactor regulations put Alaskan communities at the forefront of energy innovation. I'm always intrigued when I hear that uh, that nuclear energy is is finding a place where people are willing to look at it and, and perhaps even bring it uh, in into a motion, you know, to help provide for energy needs. Tell me what's happening with Alaska. Absolutely. In 2022, it's legislative session in Alaska. The um, legislature actually passed some uh, laws that would loosen uh, regulations on microreactors. And what actually happened, uh, it took about a year for the regulations to be put in place. Uh, And so now, it's a little complicated, but nuclear reactor regulations are overwhelmingly um, controlled by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, what Alaska has control over is the siting, so they can decide how much approval you need for siting these things. And what they did was actually scale it back. So instead of having both the legislature and local municipalities or boroughs approve of a permit, you actually have to only get the municipality or borough, or if you're in an unincorporated area in Alaska, it's just the legislature. So they've removed one of those barriers so that these uh, micro-reactors, which are really promising technology, uh, make that more uh, easier to thrive. Man, that is so encouraging. And I mean, look, of all the places where where the energy need is great, I mean, uh, you would know better than most. Uh, Alaska, it's a challenge to keep your home warm. Not only is the weather very cold, but for, for extended periods of time. I mean, the cool weather season lasts a lot longer, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And reliable energy is a really important thing for Alaskan communities. It's really expensive. Uh, A lot of these villages and rural towns end up running on diesel fuel, uh, primarily heat, home heating oil, uh, propane, coal, some of these things. And, you know, this is really expensive because you have to bring it in on barges or planes. And sometimes you have to do that before the river freezes over. Uh, So all of these places could really use cheap, reliable electricity, and nuclear microreactors are going to be a promising solution to that. Okay, so I have to ask, how long does it take to to get a microreactor built, to to get it in place? I mean, this sounds like a solution that would be so good right now, but I also understand that sometimes these things take times. Realistically, how long will it be before some of these communities could make use of this? So that's going to take some time. Of course, um, Alaska has no control over the safety regulations, so that was always going to kind of take a while. Uh, the first nuclear microreactor in Alaska is going to probably come online at Eielson Air Force Base by the end of 2027. Uh, so that's, gosh, four years from now. 
that'll be a military concept. And the Copper River Electric Association is actually looking at feasibility uh, for a commercial microreactor in Valdez. So a lot of these places are starting to look at it. Now that the regulations have loosened, we might see more commercial interest. Uh, but the technology needs a little refinement, and it's going to take some time uh, for it to pass all of its safety muster that the federal government has control over. Is there any chance that uh, federal regulations could likewise be streamlined uh, like like Alaska did? Uh, is there any pressure at the federal level to make that happen? It's my understanding that the, the Department of Energy has some uh, small modular reactors, which are very close to the same thing. Um, it's my understanding that they are doing some investment on the R&D as well as getting some of these proposals uh, in place. The really tricky thing is that this technology isn't all the way there yet. Uh, so they're they're still kind of hashing out some of the details. So they'll they'll have to do their their various safety checks. But these are so small that it's not going to be the 30-year wait that we see for some of these large nuclear plants. Uh, these are more portable. They're, they can fit in the back of a semi-truck. Uh, so that makes things a lot less complicated, too. Wow. I I don't know why, but this this topic just gets me. I want one. <laughs> I want one for myself, yeah. you know, uh, just the energy independence. Now, th this has been, I know, for some people, kind of a... a uh, an uphill battle because for a long time, I mean, seven or was it uh, Three Mile Island back in the 70s? I remember when that happened, and boy, the fear was well, you know, nuclear power that's the most dangerous thing out there. Uh, the facts don't seem to, to bear that out, though. It seems like it's actually been one of the safer methods of, of generating energy. I agree. Nuclear uh, energy has a couple of really concerning, you know, accidents like Fukushima, which actually led to zero radiation related deaths. Um, Chernobyl, uh, Three Mile Island. But it, once you start thinking past that, there's not too many others. And uh, the dangers of nuclear, I think, are rather overblown. Uh, it's very uh, easy and safe. The waste that's produced is um, not a large amount. Uh, compared to the energy it produces. Uh, and we have good ways of containing those things. And the new technology in reactors, not to mention microreactors, really do prevent meltdowns very well. Uh, so I, I definitely see it as a really promising uh, thing. And it's one of the only ways we will have zero emission energy. Uh, you know, solar and wind will not be able to plug all of the gaps that fossil fuels leave. And we have to be realistic about our energy makeup if we are going to uh, pursue the climate goals that the left has. Sarah, I have to ask, um, I know China has been moving ahead with uh, these small modular reactors. Um, is it likely that now that they're kind of getting in the game, that things could loosen up more on the part of our, our regulatory agencies just so that we can remain competitive in, in this field? That's an interesting question, and I think that is likely. I think we've seen that in the AI realm already, where uh, we're facing competition from one of our, you know, rather existential threat countries. Um, you know, a, a country that we are really concerned about overtaking us. So, I yeah, I do think that's an interesting, interesting question, and I think that's a yes. Okay. I'm just really, I'm excited to hear that this is moving forward. Um, four years. Oh, that sounds like a long, and that's just, you know, for, for the first one, but uh, you know, a lot uh, time passes quickly. I mean, look at how fast the last 10 years went. So, uh, you know, 10 years from now, just speculate for me, Sarah, is it possible that 10 years from now, this is going to be, you know, kind of a normal thing and, and 
it's not going to be such a, you know, shift for people to accept that, oh, yeah, we have a small modular reactor to, you know, to help meet our, our area's needs. I think it will become more widely accepted, but I think it will be done quietly. Uh, and what I mean by that is I think there will be a reckoning with our other sources of renewable energy, like solar and wind, when we start to realize that, wow, mining of these minerals is really intensive. Wow, electric vehicles really need a lot of these things. Uh, and, and that it's not turning out to actually be uh, net reduction in emissions. I think that nuclear will expand to uh, fill those gaps where that's, you know, actually an emissions free source for the most part. Uh, and I think that will be adopted, but the focus publicly will still be solar and wind. As far as Alaska goes, I would really love to see our communities have these things. Uh, I think it would make a huge difference to economic growth in the state. I think it would make an enormous difference in energy reliability and to know that you can heat your homes and you're not paying $5 a gallon for heating oil and you're not paying up to $12 a gallon for heating oil. That's a really volatile thing. Um, so I, I would really love to see that in 10 years. Hopefully we'll have a few commercial projects by then. I'm thinking too, in terms of, uh, you know, electrical infrastructure and I, I can't remember. Uh, I saw a documentary here a couple of years ago about what it took to construct, uh, for instance, power lines across uh, the Alaskan wilderness, and it has to be done, you know, in an environmentally friendly way. And it was it was mind boggling what it took just to to get power from point A to point B. So it sounds like something like this could uh, make it less necessary to have to to have those power grids spread everywhere. Absolutely. And one of the benefits of nuclear microreactors and one of the reasons they're being um, the, the first one constructed in Alaska is going to be in a military uh, scenario is because they can exist separately from existing power grids, uh, that they can provide power quickly in natural disasters or keep a military base running in the case of a regular disaster. Uh, so I, I really do think that's promising where we're not going to have to uh, create the kind of really strict grids that are set out in the rest of the United States, uh, because Alaska, we just can't connect to the, the you know, power grids in the continental U.S. Okay, again, we are talking with Sarah Montalbano. She's the policy manager at Alaska Policy Forum and Northwest Regional Leader with Young Voices and uh, also a visiting fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Where can people follow you, Sarah? Uh, please follow me on Twitter, Sarah Montalbano, and the O is a zero. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Sarah Anderson to the program. She's the Associate Director of Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties at the R Street Institute. Sarah, since this is the first time for uh, some of our audience to meet you, would you take just a moment, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, Brian, thanks you so much for having me on today. Um, like you said, I'm the Associate Director currently of Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties Policy at the R Street Institute. Um, we were discussing just before this, I'm born and raised right outside of the Washington, D.C. area. Went to school in Virginia, came to work in D.C. for a couple of years, um, handling a bunch of different policy issues for a limited government grassroots organization. Um, and what I came to realize is that, you know, limited government advocates, we talk a lot about taxes and regulation and health care and education. 
Um, but two glaring areas where I think limited government advocates sometimes turn a blind eye where they shouldn't um, is foreign policy and the criminal justice system. So thankfully, I found a home for those two issues in the liberty movement in D.C. Um, and was able to start working on criminal justice policy full time, which is really where I feel like the government extremely oversteps into the personal freedoms of its people um, and often to the detriment to not only those people, but to public safety and the communities around them. Okay, you've got my full attention. You are you're speaking my language, and so I'm happy that uh, we can dive into an article that you've written for the Washington Examiner. Congress can finally support equal justice under the law. Okay, I I think I pay attention, but I have to say I was not aware of the Equal Act um, that Congress, I guess, has had the opportunity to to consider for some time. For those like me who are, are just learning about this, tell us what the Equal Act is and what does it seek to correct. Absolutely. Well, at the R Street Institute, where, again, I work on criminal justice and civil liberties policy, we do research on a number of different areas that pertain to the effectiveness of the criminal justice system and also in the ways that um, different governments, whether it's state, local or federal government, can align each other into policies that better suit the people um, that they govern over. So the Equal Act is a prime example of that. It would finally catch the federal government up to the supermajority of state sentencing policies, which just means eliminating the current sentencing disparity between two forms of cocaine, crack and powder cocaine, which um, have been proven over the past couple of decades after this law was um, initially passed to create the disparity, that they're actually pharmacologically identical substances. Um, and again, the supermajority of states currently treat them as identical substances, and the federal government does not. Um, meaning that um, there's an 18 to 1 current disparity in sentencing of these substances at the federal level. It has been reduced over time from 100 to 1, which w was what was put into place. Um, it was reduced in 2010. That was made retroactive in 2018. Um, but there still is a disparity in sentencing between these substances that are identical, um, which, again, doesn't make sense for equal justice under the law. Yeah, let's talk about the communities that are primarily affected by this. You mention in your article, um, Len Bias, who died clear back mm -hmm. in 1986. I remember him being picked for the NBA and then uh, dying of a cocaine overdose, you know, right after he was, was picked. I had no idea, though, that this, this went clear back. I mean, this were almost 40 years that, uh, that, yeah. that this, this law has been on the books. That's right. Um, and again, the creation of this law is a result of his uh, tragic overdose is uh, nonsensical in itself because his overdose was actually powder cocaine, not crack cocaine, as um, the law was passed under the assumption of. Um, but that gets to the what the sentencing disparity actually means. Um, the 100 to 1 disparity passed in 1986 just means that distribution of five grams of crack cocaine carried the same mandatory minimum sentence of five years in federal prison that would have required 500 grams of powder cocaine to trigger. Wow. Um, in, like I said, in 2010, it was reduced to 18 to 1, which means that distribution of 28 grams of crack cocaine would carry the same mandatory minimum sentence as the same 500 grams of powder. Um, but again, for substances that are pharmacologically identical, this doesn't make any sense. Um, and additionally, like you mentioned, the communities that this law hits most deeply are minorities. Around 80% of the federal population that are incarcerated at the federal level are African-American. Um, and there's actually no safety benefit to this as well. And there's actually harm. Uh, we found that um, the United States Sentencing Commission um, has done a study. They did a study way back in 1995 recommending the elimination of this disparity. Um, but there's a Bureau of Prisons and DOJ study that came out after the 
retroactivity of this law in 2018 um, that shows that those who are released under retroactivity established have actually recidivated or committed a new crime at a rate four times lower than the average releasee from the Bureau of Prisons. So there's no public safety benefit. There's a drastic racial disparity. Um, and again, it's not equal justice under the law as it stands. Wow, this is such a great illustration of why you have to be careful. Anybody who says, well, there ought to be a law needs to understand that sometimes there can be unintended consequences. And, and when it does right. come to a law where there's a mistake like this, I, I had no idea. It takes such a long time to try to repeal or even alter the law to correct the problem that was created. Absolutely. And I think that gets kind of to the premise of why I wrote this article um, in the first place, which is just another example of congressional inaction on something that really does affect many, many Americans. Of course, in the criminal justice system broadly, we have about 2 million people incarcerated across the country. Um, only about 400,000 of them are at the federal level. Um, so it's much, much smaller than uh, the criminal justice system at large. Um, but of course, the federal government does go a long way in setting an example um, for states on how they should behave. Um, and that's something we saw with the passage of the First Step Act in 2018, following the passage of that bill signed into law by President Trump, um, which is the bill that actually included the retroactivity of the 18 to 1 disparity. Um, those states, a lot of states following that, North Carolina, for example, and Florida as well, came up with their own first step acts in the footprints of the federal government. Um, but it does go the other way. A lot of the things that were in the first step act came from things that states like Texas and Georgia had done previously going back to 2007. So there's a lot of um, cross-pollination, I suppose, between the multiple different systems. And it's important that they kind of get on the same page and understand that, hey, for the people out there, your governments do treat these things similarly, and there's not such drastic disparities between state law and federal law. Um, and this is one, like you said, it's been nearly 40, actually more than 40 years at this point, um, it seems, of th these types of policies that don't make sense for the people. Sarah, I have to wonder if this opens the door maybe to um to places where, where state and federal law overlaps. And I, I, what I'm getting at is, is it possible that we could see in some cases where state laws would be considered sufficient to deal with it? Even if the state laws may differ, um, you know, the they should be able to handle this without, uh, you know, the federal government imposing basically a one-size-fits-all kind of uh, solution on right. top of all of them. Right. So that gets into how different cases are prosecuted and there's different jurisdictions with various factors between state and federal cases. Um, this federal law does not preempt the policies of states. If a case is prosecuted at the state level, they will experience again in a supermajority of states identical treatment between these substances. Um, but if it is a federal charge and prosecuted through the federal system, um, they will incur currently this 18 to 1 disparity. And I did misspeak earlier. I said there are about 400,000 federal inmates. I do believe it's about half that, 200,000 or so. Um, and so it's even a smaller portion than the entire system. But again, it still speaks to the fact that we do have to look at each segment of the system. And just like you said, in terms of, you know, does the federal law preempt the state law? Does it not? How is that decided? I think for the average American, it's quite confusing to understand that um, there are different systems, even in the same, right? All of your states are located inside of the United States. How is it that the federal government has such a different law than the supermajority of states? It creates confusion for the people. It creates confusion for the legitimacy of law and also for the law enforcement officers that are out there trying to do their jobs, administer justice, um, 
safely um, to have people who are uncertain of what the laws are, how it's going to be prosecuted, why it's even prosecuted in some cases when you look at substances like marijuana, where more than 70% of people uh, don't even think it should be a crime at all. Yet again, it is a schedule one substance at the federal level. That's a conversation for another day, but yet another wonderful or not so wonderful example um, of how the federal government and states create confusion for people um, in their maybe sometimes futile efforts to protect public safety. Boy, that's actually, that's a great example. I've lost count of how many states have legalized marijuana at some level, yeah. either medically or recreationally. Yeah. It is about the same. There are 38 states with some form of legal cannabis, um, which is in stark contrast to the Schedule One, which is um, the highest illegality that the federal government can place on a substance. All right. We're talking with Sarah Anderson. She's the Associate Director of Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties at the R Street Institute, as well as being a Young Voices contributor. Sarah, where can people follow you on social media? So you can follow me, um, of course, go to our web website, rstreet.org, and you can find the work from our team at R Street um, on all of our eight different policy areas, as well as on Twitter. You can find me at S-M-A-Y-R Anderson. Thanks so much for having me on, Brian. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Peter Clark back to the show. Peter has been on here before as a Young Voices contributor. And uh, for the sake of folks who are meeting you for the first time, take a second. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, um, by day, I work a corporate job. And at night, I consider myself a bit of, I moonlight as a bit of a consumer choice advocate. <laughs> you know, kind of like the Clark Kent of uh, consumer choice. Um, you know, so I, you know, I enjoy doing some, you know, independent research and writing. So hence, hence why I'm here with the program. So on behalf of a grateful public, I thank you. Actually, I, Peter, I'm really grateful for the article that we're going to be discussing. And, and, um, I did not realize that, uh, Arizona, uh, has cottage food laws that uh, that can make it very difficult for people. And you start out this wonderful article by describing this uh, chorizo breakfast pocket from a favorite cafe. And basically, would you mind just kind of relating the story to us about how this brought to the forefront that uh, there are certain laws out there to protect the public that sometimes can actually prevent us from from getting what, what there's a market for and a desire for? Well, exactly. And um, I had to say, you know, that day when I went to the cafe, I was quite disappointed right. when I was told that I couldn't I couldn't get my favorite breakfast item. But um, what um, what did but what did come from that, though, was is that I didn't realize in the background around this past spring in April, you actually there was actually a bill coming up on the on the table there for the legislator uh, to pass through. Um, that would loosen the cottage food laws here in Arizona, which would then give the opportunity for more food vendors to be able to get into the game because there would be less barriers of entry. Because as I detail in my um, article, you know, it's very expensive to get even like a, you know, to hire a ghost kitchen to work on your behalf and you give them the recipes. It's expensive to get a uh, food truck. It's expensive to get as you would, as you could imagine, commercial um, culinary space. So when you take all those factors into account, it really keeps a lot of great would-be food pro providers out of the game. And I really personally feel like that's kind of a travesty, but it, it's really a whole other thing, though, once it hits you personally. Because you can sit here, you know, look at the, you know, all the regulations, all the legislation. You can look at, you know, various patterns and... <clears throat> 
you know, in, in, in terms of, um, in terms of regulation and all that, but, you know, but once it impacts you, it's, it, it takes on a different toll. So now my understanding is the, the gist of uh, why you weren't able to get your, your favorite breakfast food was because the, the law, um, for the sake of food safety prohibited the making of that food at home. Um, even though it was, you know, being sold, you know, at a, at a, you know, an establishment later on, um, Talk to me about about what change may be in the wind and why uh, Governor Hobbs should sign the bill to save the cottage food industry. Well, initially, she actually had a chance to sign it back in April, but she vetoed it, unfortunately. You know, and like I said, I don't, I don't play the, the game where I look at politicians as being either all good or all bad. I look at it as, you know, they either make good decisions or bad decisions. And in that case, that was a bad decision for a litany of reasons. But um, what because previously, um, you know, because it's been an evolutionary process with the, with the cottage food laws here in Arizona, because um, you had because um, initially we had them established in, tw- in 2011. Then it was you know, for like, you know, you know, I guess you could say not, you know, I guess you could say not what they refer to as non hazardous, which I interpret to mean something that, you know, you don't have to cook, there is or refrigerate no kill step to kill any uh, pathogens. So what I would ta- interpret that as being is that, you know, something like a baked loaf of bread. Now, I wasn't living in Arizona at the time, so I couldn't give you the context in which that was passed. But um, what I have a little bit and then there was an amendment in 2018 that further expanded um, what, what, what would be permitted. Um, I think that it's expanded to even include honey. If I, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, wow. but I, but you know, def, definitely fact check me on that, but because I do, because I do believe from the article I read, it did, it did say that honey was expanded to be included in 2018, which, um, so, um, so then from there, you know, you know, and this, the next step would be probably to allow, um, you know, you know, food that does require cooking and preparation and refrigeration, which is kind of what, you know, in a very limited, in a limited capacity, um, this bill wouldn't, would allow, you know, but one thing I can say is, you know, if you talk to any food truck providers here in the state, you know, a lot of them will tell you, you know, you know, kind of off the, you know, on the DLA, I prepared this at home because, <laughs> yeah, I mean it makes sense. Now, and I look, I I believe that uh, you know the um, regulatory agencies responsible for food safety are probably operating out of a sense of look, we just want to make sure that people are protected from this, but. There can be too much of a good thing. And you point out in in your article, for instance, uh, Wyoming has the loosest food laws in the country, but you don't exactly hear about, oh, yeah, that's a death trap. Everybody who eats out in Wyoming, you know, risks dying of it. Yeah. And actually, I did some subsequent research even after... um after I wrote the article and actually you even have, um, some, some other States that have looser laws than Arizona as well. Um, cause I actually, I think there was a article I came across from, uh, Arizona capital times. that was written by, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Institute for justice at all, yep. but, um, they've oh, yeah. done some great work in terms of cottage food. And, uh, there were, there were two, um, members of that organization that had written an op-ed piece, um, for this. Uh, and I remember they listed a number of States that had looser laws and, Montana was one of them. Now, the only one out of the list that had any food, you know, any instances of foodborne infections was Wyoming, but that was because they were selling raw milk, which, you know, I'm not saying anything about banning raw milk, but it, it, it is it is a higher risk food item than, let's say, like a hamburger that's been cooked well done, right? Right. So. 
So is is there pushback? I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to get my mind around who would resist, you know, loosening the, the regulations or loosening these laws? Um, is there a lobby that uh, it's in their best interest to to keep the laws, you know, strict as they are? I would probably say, you know, and I, I unfortunately and, and, you know, my, my apologies, I don't know if I researched that deeply into the coalitions that were backing against it. I know that um, that the governor did, in fact, state food safety concerns, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are associations in state of, you know, of established, you know, brick and mortar restaurants that might want to keep competition out. Because obviously, if you own the only diner in town, you know, and you can keep smaller providers from coming in, you know, you got the market share right there. So. I certainly, I certainly could see that being going on in the, in the background, kind of like in like a bootleggers and Baptist kind of framework for sure. Yeah, I well, I'm a big fan of the concept of like, for instance, food truck freedom, where, um, you know, the basically the regulations are minimal. You know, there, there's it's not like, oh, yeah, you know, it's every man for himself. We don't want to turn, you know, the, the culinary scene into Thunderdome. But at the same time, when when there's uh, freedom and there's competition, um, it's in their interest to make sure that they're they're serving and preparing something that's not only tasty, but also safe. They want those customers coming back over and over. Well, well even if you look at it too, right, the, the risk of even foodborne illness is really slim. I mean, in terms of like, I mean, I think I read a, a figure that like approximately 48 million Americans get food poisoning each year, right? But only 3,000 end up dying. And I think it's only like a couple hundred that like 48... Uh, now, don't uh, for about like approximately 148,000, you know, give or take, that get hospitalized, right? Now, that's a very small segment of the U.S. population when you really think about it. It sounds scary, you know, because I think the figure, how they originally presented it in the data was like one in six Americans get food more, you know, contract food borne illness every single year. But it's really not that many when you think about it. Like if you got, you know, percentage wise and all that. So. Okay, and, and the very fact that Wyoming has had the success they've had with no reported instances of foodborne illness, and they even, and also too much like Montana, they do sell the high risk uh, raw dairy products as well, so they haven't had any issues with that either. So, well, I guess uh, the the burning question then is, what's the likelihood you're going to be able to get your favorite uh, breakfast uh, food again? Well, uh, well, the question is going to come back up uh, for the legislator in um, January. So, admit, I, I would say because it's probably going to take a couple of months before it gets enacted anyway. So, let's just say I'm hopeful towards the end of uh, 2024. Let's just put it that way. But there's probably other. But what I look forward to, it's not even just my my favorite breakfast item, but it's also who who's going to who's going to emerge because of these loosened regulations, right? What great food truck. You know, um, in my town, you know, we're starting to see a little bit more development, but I, I still don't have an Indian restaurant down here. And I would love to get get some nice curries. So, oh, you yeah. know, if an Indian food truck opened up, I'd be so happy. You know, so, so you know, we look at it, this, it not only hurts people who are trying to make their livelihood from this. And I think one thing I should have mentioned previously is the fact that actually I did notice, I didn't check, check on this. There is a national pattern towards the loosening of cottage food laws. And a lot of this does coincide with the pandemic because, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people had to, you know, they lost their jobs. So they had to find another way to make money. So they started making jams and jellies and other food items at home, you know, and obviously, you know, if you just lost your job, you can't really afford commercial kitchen space. So you have to try to work with what you have. So I definitely think, you know, 
me as a consumer, I benefit, but even more so those hardworking Americans who need, you know, <laughs> need this to, you know, pay their bills and to thrive and strive towards the American dream. That's even more important than me getting my shrizzle pocket. <laughs> Again, we're talking with Peter Clark. Peter, you have made me hungry like you cannot believe. Where can people follow you on social media? All right, you can. Uh, the easiest way to find find me would be on the Twitterverse at blog underscore logic. Let me repeat, blog underscore logic. And uh, thank you so much again for having me on, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm very happy to welcome Marcos Falcone back to the program. Uh, Marcos, this is, uh, you're going to be a familiar voice for some people, but for people hearing you for the very first time, um, would you take just a moment to tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yes. Hi, Brian. Um, it's great to talk to you again. I'm um, Marcos Falcone. I'm based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I'm the project manager of Fundación Libertad which is Argentina's oldest classical liberal think tank. Um, and I'm a political scientist. So I've been watching our election closely in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, it looks like the winds of change are beginning to stir in Argentina. And, and I have to admit, uh, Marcos, what I have been seeing more than anything is I've been seeing and hearing uh, video clips of uh, Javier Mille. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, Millet. He has he has really caught a lot of people's attention, but he's not the only presidential candidate that portends there might be some pretty big changes on the horizon. Talk to me about, uh, walk me through where where has Argentina been, where are they now, and what is the direction that they may go in the days ahead? Right. So right now we're in the middle of an election process that takes will take between two and three months, depending on whether we get a second ballot or not. The first ballot's gonna be in October, and we just had our primary election, which uh, works in a way that looks like a general election, just because everyone is um, mandated to vote. And so the results of August will likely mirror those of October. And what we got in August was a victory by Javier Millet, uh, which is a self-described a narco-capitalist candidate, uh, first ever for Argentina. Uh, he led the vote with 30%, um, and he was closely followed by Patricia Bullrich, um, who is the former minister of security uh, of uh, former President Mauricio Macri. Um, and her coalition got 28% of the vote. He, uh, she actually faced um, a primary against Buenos Aires Mayor uh, Horacio Rodríguez Larreta. She won. And then the third coalition, um, the one that's pro-government, led by current Minister of Economy Sergio Massa, got 27% of the vote. So they're all very close. Um, but both Millet and Bullrich um, are strong opponents of the current statist uh, economic model that has gotten Argentina to where it is today. Um, just for listeners to to have a to get a glimpse of what it's like to live here, our inflation rate um, is currently at one hundred and thirty percent and up. Um, wow! As yeah, as fiscal deficit uh, as the fiscal deficit continues to to maybe not grow but continues to exist and forces the government to print money because nobody um, will lend money to the government. 
So uh, our last, um, so so the IMF has actually become the our latest our latest savior. I'm sorry. Um, and so what we have right now is it an economic mess that Milei and Bullrich promised to solve. They promised to solve it in different ways. Uh, Milei, as a libertarian, is promising strong. Uh, change and, and very quick change. He's promising to dollarize the economy. He's pr and, and by doing that, he's promising to end the central bank altogether, eliminate the Argentine peso. He is proposing uh, the uh, that we privatize some of our state-owned companies. He's promising public spending reductions. He is promising to eliminate over half of the country's ministries. And that's a very... Um, we, we could call it a brutal approach or a sudden approach, whereas Bullrich is saying this is not really feasible. We want to liberalize Argentina's economy as well, but we want to do it um, in a more gradual way. Uh, we don't want to get rid of the central bank, but we want to place a, an independent governor which who will run a responsible monetary policy. Um, they She also promises to... Um, improve operations of currently state-owned companies. She's promising to turn them profitable, which is not a, an objective, a goal of the current administration. Um, and she is also promising cuts uh, in taxes and public spending, but not as harsh as Millet. So what we have are two different ways of getting to the same place, basically, uh, provided one of these two candidates, either Bullrich or Millet, win the general election or the second ballot, if there was going to be one in October. Okay, Marcos. In I November, have, I'm sorry. I have two questions for you. Um, one, tell us a little bit about what it's like under, I think you said 130% inflation. What does that look like when you go to the store, or when you fuel up your car? Secondly, is it the kind of thing that needs to be fixed quickly, or is it something where it, it can take a longer, more uh, deliberate approach, uh, as, as you indicated, you know, contrasting between these two candidates? Well, um, inflation in everyday life um, is, is just terrifying because you go to the store, you go to the supermarket, and you never really know uh, the prices that you will find. Um, but while this happens, your salary is not going up by as much as inflation is going up. So usually what happens is you get to the supermarket and you find out that you're going to spend a lot more money than you expect. And so economic calculation becomes difficult. It becomes difficult for an individual who goes to the supermarket, but it also becomes difficult for a company, for example, uh, because accounting is a total mess if you have 130% inflation. And so the consequence the main consequence of this is that people want to get rid of the peso. And what they do is everyone who can afford to do this um, will turn to dollars, basically. And people will try to set prices in dollars. Uh, for example, um, for renting out an apartment, uh, more and more landlords are requiring that contracts be signed in dollars and not pesos because because of Argentina's regulations, they will not be able to increase prices in pesos, uh, but they, if they got dollars, they would at least get some sort of stability in what they, uh, in what they earn. The same goes for people uh, with college degrees who are in a position to demand uh, their employees, uh, their employers that they pay them in 
in dollars. This is, of course, not possible for everyone. And so inflation ends up hurting the poorest the most. And this is the reason why I think that inflation cannot be tamed over time, over three or four years. And this is actually the reason why Millet is promising to dollarize the economy. Because if you dollarize the economy, then inflation should go away immediately. Of course, this does not solve um, other issues. This does not open up the economy by itself. It does not cut taxes or regulations, but it does eliminate the inflation problem altogether. And we've seen this in other countries like Ecuador, for example. Some economists argue that over the long run, dollarization is a bad idea um, because it amplifies external shocks uh, in the country and makes it more difficult to come out of economic crisis because you don't have a central bank um, which can act quickly. Um, but proponents of dollarization are saying, well, this is exactly the problem that we have now. Uh, that we have a central bank, because the central bank has um, taken us to where we are today, which is 130% inflation. Um, so in my view, uh, the inflation problem needs to be tackled immediately. Dollarization is one way to do that. Another way to do that would be to propose a credible fiscal adjustment plan that takes um, place immediately after the next president takes office. Um, but um, this is, of course, a debate for um, economists. Wow. And as you're describing this, I don't know, I have this little nagging uh, voice in the back of my head that's saying, pay close attention to what is happening in Argentina, because I, I don't, uh, I can't help but wonder if uh, if other countries, including the U.S., may actually have to take some notes and, and see. I, I don't think our situation is sustainable, too. Inflation is on the rise. So we're seeing, um, you know, the purchasing power of the dollar shrinking in, in many ways. It's not quite as bad as, as you mentioned. When I go to the grocery store, I still feel kind of, you know, the wind being knocked out of me, but it's, it's not so bad that I have to, you know, I, I have trouble accounting for it. Um, any advice that you would give uh, to, to people who, who want to get a better understanding of what's at stake with, with uh, this kind of monetary policy, how can they get a basic understanding so that they can better grasp the issue and, and contrast the, the differing options before them? Yes, um, I would say that even though the situation in the U.S. is not that comparable to Argentina because the U.S. is a global power um, and it is much more, much bigger, um, I would say one thing, just pay close attention um, to the deficit and pay close attention to public spending because in the end, that is the root of the inflation problem and then many of the problems that our economies face. And the U.S. has been spending more and more over the past years. The debt has been increasing. And provided that the world believes in the U.S., this will not be a problem. But the moment may come when the, when the world says, you know, where exactly are you going to get all this money, you know, to pay for your debt? And so pay close attention to the fiscal deficit, pay close attention to public spending, and you'll be in for a treat. Okay, we've been visiting with Marcos Falcone. He is with uh, Young Voices. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Brian, for the invite.